Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Visit RCAT.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. My guest today is William H. Fain, Jr., FAIA, partner at Johnson Fain. Architect and urban designer, Bill is the managing partner and directs master planning and urban design for Johnson Fain, a 50-person Los Angeles, California firm. Bill has won several national AIA and Progressive Architecture Awards for projects including Mission Bay in San Francisco, Beijing's Central Business District, and the Greenways Plan for Los Angeles. During his career, Bill has won two fellowships from the National Endowment of the Arts and Humanities and was the recipient of a Rome Prize Fellowship at the American Academy in Rome, Italy. He has a Bachelor of Architecture degree from UC Berkeley and a Master of Architecture in Urban Design from Harvard Graduate School of Design. Bill joined Pereira Associates in 1980 as Director of Urban Design. In 1987, he and Scott Johnson acquired the firm rebranding it Johnson Fane. I am excited to chat today about the First Americans Museum in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. In 1997, Johnson Fane responded to an RFP for a new Native American Museum and Cultural Center in Oklahoma. The firm was initially chosen for site selection and master planning. As part of a second selection process, Johnson Fane was also tapped to design the museum itself. Working with Native American advisors, Johnson Fane's design team approached the project through the holistic, nonlinear Native ways, a circular philosophy of viewing the universe, rather than the contrasting Western linear way of thinking. The concept for the museum, which honors 39 tribes in Oklahoma today, 
includes an earthen spiral mound that begins in the earth and ascends to the heavens. The spiral mound is intersected by a circular building formed by two arcs, which house the museum, where the two circles, one of the mounds and the other of the buildings cross each other, a space is formed called the Hall of the People. The building circle is composed of two arcs, the Western Arc featuring permanent and rotating exhibitions, and the Northern Arc that houses theaters, retail, dining, and other services necessary in modern museums. The Hall of the People, a 110-foot-tall prismatic glass structure, serves as both a starting point for visitors and a central gathering space. Its form is inspired by a Wichita grass lodge and features 10 26-inch diameter columns to represent the 10 miles per day that Native people were forced to walk during the expulsion from their lands as required by the U.S. 1830 Indian Removal Act. Three sky terraces, sun, moon, and stars, set back within the building envelope, offer views of the Oklahoma River and downtown Oklahoma City. Bill, I am so happy to have you here today. Welcome to Detailed. How are you? Well, I'm I'm recovering from a, a 12-hour flight uh, from Italy, and uh, so I'm a bit foggy, but uh, we'll give it a shot. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm trying to feel sorry for you here, and <laughs> been to Italy once years, a number of years ago, probably 15, 20 years ago, and one of these days I'm going to get back there. Beautiful country. Yeah, it's great. I like to kind of break the ice a little bit. What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? There's uh, actually three important pieces of advice. The first is uh, my father saying to me when I was about 12 years old that when you grow up, son, you're going to have to make some decisions about what you do. And he said, make sure that you follow your interests and your passion uh, because it will lead you to higher levels. And I have to say that my profession is... uh, is central in my life, besides my family, of course. But it's um, I do have a passionate view towards my profession and what I do. And this project, I'm deeply involved in because of its complexity. So I think uh, that's the first. And then the second, when I graduated from Cal Berkeley in the 60s, one of my professors gave me the advice, for the first 10 years, don't stay in any particular job more than two years. And I looked back and I remembered that advice and I realized that I'd followed it because in many ways as architects, we learn uh, by experience and uh, experiencing the world and cities and those sorts of things are very important to me at least because I uh, direct the urban design in our office and uh, it was very good advice for me. And then the third advice was given to me by a fellow named Dan Dworsky, who was an architect here in Los Angeles and died uh, last year. And he said, don't retire too soon. <laughs> so so I have to say, I'm, I'm still working at my current age, which is uh, in the 70s. That's all great advice. Let's talk about this building. I can't wait to get to this. So this building is is incredible. It really is. And there's so much to talk about. This project has quite the journey from initial RFP in 1997 to its official opening in 2021, September of 2021. It also looks like there were so many players and parties involved in politics and all of these different things over the years. 
Why don't you give me a little bit of the background? Yeah, well, we had done some work in Oklahoma in the uh, in the late 80s, and it was recognized by a number of people. And we were called in 1996 by the Secretary of Commerce of Oklahoma, and he said, we're about ready to release an RFP, and we'd like to include you. Are you interested? And of course, we said we were. This wasn't necessarily for the design of the building. This was to program and to uh, do the site selection for a facility. We were selected in the end and put together a substantial team. Uh, Hornbeek Larson out of Edmond, uh, Harrison Price, who was a, an economist at the time, and large cultural resources out of Canada. Uh, they did a lot of museum work and programming. Don Fixico, who was a Native American to advise us on cultural affairs and that sort of thing. So we began a process of really programming the facility trying to understand what they wanted. They only had a statement of about five or six uh, goals. So we had to read between the lines a lot. We met continually with the state authority or the state government was the client. And there were several cities and towns around Oklahoma very interested in having the facility. During that process, we did a lot of relationship diagrams and, and programming and that sort of thing and evaluated the sites, had the elders Native American elders of various tribes uh, walk the sites and uh, we'd have meetings with them to understand their opinions. And clearly Oklahoma City became the priority site. And it's largely because of a number of things. One is Highway 35 and 40 cross right at the site and it's said to be the crossroads of America. Um, I'm sure there are others across the United States, but uh, they are very active in terms of interstate travel. Also, it's on the, uh, at that time it was called the North Canadian River. Today it's called the Oklahoma River. They renamed it. It's also a part of a series of projects that the city is sponsoring along the river that are culturally driven. Thus, there would be a, a significant public funding at the local level and a commitment from the local level. Visibility from the freeways were very important. Uh, it was clear that this was a site. And there were three ecologies that are really indicative of the uh, Native American tribes. And they are uh, the river, the woodlands, which is characteristic of Oklahoma. There's a very large woodland area on the site uh, and um, the plains. So it was very clear that this is the one we would pick. Now, once the site was picked, uh, uh, there were lots of negotiations that took place between the various parties. And then the, the, we were asked to do the uh, the architectural design. Now, uh, I think there were five teams that were interviewed, so we have to go back through the process again. This is uh, really a design competition. In some ways, we'd already begun to diagram the site. Uh, our conscience was constantly lectured to by Don Fixico, 100% uh, Native American, and who has writ written over 11 books on the subject and currently at Arizona State University. So he was very much involved in this development of the plan. The process for selection started about 2001. We started the architecture in about 2002, uh, thereabouts. I think by 2006, we were at a point where we could start construction. Construction was slow because we needed to get state funding. Uh, the funding cycles took place 
So it got drawn out a bit. By 2012, we had the Hall of the People built, which is a very large uh, 110-foot space that framed out in steel. And the funding, we ran into another funding cycle. And one of the big problems we had is that every time you do this, uh, you've got to go back to the state legislature to get uh, funding. So it always gets difficult. And as time has gone on, it's become even more difficult because of the politics uh, and the institutional memory. The project now at this point was about 14, 15 years uh, in the making. And funding was on the ledger to be approved. And a tornado hit more Oklahoma and devastated the city. And uh, they diverted at the last minute uh, the funding for the museum to uh, deal with the issues of the uh, families that were affected by the, this tragedy. So then the next year, there was uh, a new senator was in charge of the Appropriations Committee, and he uh, had other priorities. So it got delayed, and it got into a, a cycle that for five years, it was uh, essentially boarded up. Now, the good thing is that the contractor, a Manhattan Construction, uh, every two weeks, depending on the weather conditions, would uh, energize the mechanical system so that they were constantly being uh, run so that uh, they wouldn't be affected by non-use. So we, uh, it, it got so that in 2016, approximately, a little later, we began to regroup to continue the project because we got funding. But in that process, the state legislature decided they didn't know what, what this facility was all about. They spent a lot of money on it, but they didn't know why. They did a study to figure out how to repurpose the facility to actually take down a mound that we had designed and had been constructed. What's that mound doing? What is it doing? What is it all about? You know, they, don't, they had no idea because now at this point it was about 18 years out and a lot of the, the legislators had either died or had retired from the state legislature. So it, it was very complex. So we, it wasn't until uh, 1718 that we rekindled the effort. And uh, in that process, uh, the board, in its wisdom, they picked an absolutely fabulous director for the museum, Jim Pepper Henry. And he was the deputy director of the American Museum in, in Washington, D.C. And I th think he was the also the director of the herd and a number of other facilities and had a great experience in operations. So when we came back, then we had to make adjustments in the documents to deal with uh, his input. So then in 2021, we opened the facility. Kudos for sticking with it. <laughs> yeah. I always say I started with, with brown hair and, uh, you know, a significant amount of it. Now I've got less of it and it's white. <laughs> <laughs> Paint me a, a verbal picture of some of the spaces in the building. Uh, in developing the concepts, we developed three different alternatives. Uh, all three uh, engaged the building and the earth. And very importantly, one of the things that we had learned is that earth, uh, in a Western European sense, is land. In the native world, earth is spiritual. So the three options we developed, one was uh, on the earth, that was building museum. It was very highly visible from the freeway. And um, the second was in the earth, that is, do a, a giant mound, but make it a part of the earth. And the third was of the earth, a combination of 
a highly visible building plus a large spiral mount. We knew we wanted to do a mound in the beginning of this design process because it's you know a site on the river. It had to, you had to have a mound. You know that's what it is. But before the design was finalized, we got a call from the city. There was a series of projects being done along the river, and they needed to transport soil to the site. Now they own the site at this point, so to their surprise, we said, "Oh, that's great." <laughs> and so they wanted to know where to put it. So we had to locate the building before the design had been finalized by any means. We also had to determine what the shape of the mound was before we had, we had actually done the final design. So it was really quite uh, opportunistic. And quite frankly, it was a fabulous thing because the soil was given to us free. I think it was four to 500,000 cubic yards of earth and 45,000 truckloads they were brought uh, on site. They came down the river. They went under the bridges of the freeways that were uh, crossing at this point, and then came onto the site and then dumped the site. It was compacted as best they could. And I might say about the mound, there's two, there's two aspects of the mound. There's two mounds, actually. There's a, uh, a mound which is 20 feet high. It's circular, uh, much in the way I've been speaking of this. And it brings the project above the floodplain because we're the entire site is 280 acres. It's all above, uh, it's all in the floodplain uh, except the northern part. And so the project needs to be brought above the, the floodplain. Now th there is a levee along the river which protects it, but uh, it's not uh, that well engineered. So there are times when it leaks through and the site is wet. So when you approach the site, you go up onto that disc. Then the spiral mound that I'm speaking of earlier is then a second mound that's built on top of that. And that concept prevailed and we presented it to the board. And in fact, they picked the, the one of the earth. It was comprised of two circles. One was the earthen circle. It started in the earth, uh, meaning that the origin man comes from the earth, then ascends to heaven. So we had this a promontory walk that takes you from in the earth to a very tall promontory point uh, above the river. That circle then is complemented with another circle, which is really predominantly the building. And that circle comes from uh, the eastern direction. The two circles intersect and they form a very interesting shaped prism. And then we developed a very high volume in that space. And that's the central space of the museum, the arrival and the central meeting place for everyone, for events and that sort of thing. And this intersection of these two circles, uh, we called the Hall of the People. And the thing about this project is you can interpret it in various ways. Uh, the earthen circle is nature, for instance, and the man-made circle is, is man and the resolution of nature and man are in the hall of the people. You could take a, the earthen circle to represent the native people, and you could represent the building, or call it the imposition of the Western ways, and the hall of the people is a hall of reconciliation of those two histories. So there's various ways of interpreting this organization is very simple, the uh, idea of a diagram, and it reads very well. So when you enter the building, you come through from the east. There's very large walls, and it's composed of this 
uh, indigenous stone of Oklahoma. It's a beautiful stone made up of various of white and brush colors and things like that. It's really gorgeous, complex in its color. So therefore, it conveys the diversity of the various tribes in Oklahoma. So you go through these walls, you go into a vestibule and then into the large space of your reception space, the information desk is there. And the space is composed, uh, it's a glass front, a uh, very large glass front. It's round, there are 10 columns. Each column represents a mile. In the 1830 statute, uh, the Indian removal statute, it requires that federal marshals uh, march the Indians 10 miles a day from their uh, location. It was a tragic event. It's commemorated by a movie, uh, movie The Trail of Tears, and uh, we've heard this, and, but it involved many tribes. It's not just the Seminoles from Florida, for instance. So if you continue through the building, you can move out into the festival uh, circle, a very large circle, a thousand feet across. On the 21st of December, the sun sets on the other side of the mound, but we have an opening which is a walkway that takes you through the mound to a dance circle, at least in the master plan, uh, on the southwest side of the project, and then the horizon beyond. And so the sun actually sets through that, that opening. So you can stand in the circle and you can see through the mound to the setting sun. Likewise, oh, that's cool. The, likewise at the summer solstice, uh, it sets at the peak of the mound at sunset. The other is uh, when they settled at a location, their teepees would be around the circle, of course. Uh, the chief would have his entrance to his teepee facing east, and uh, at the equinox, the sun comes directly through the front door from the east. Uh, uh, this is the rising sun, not the setting sun. Uh, directly through the front door into the museum on the equinox. Going back into the building and talking about some of the spaces, the materials were very well, uh, very importantly selected. We used certain wood uh, ceilings, planks. There were, it said that the Hall of the People was uh, remembering the Wichita uh, Native American grass uh, huts. And it's true. I mean, the imagery uh, does that, except it's glass. It's not gl uh, grass. And the organization is such that the permanent wing of the show, which includes Applebaum's work, particularly on the ground floor and the second floor, is the permanent display, which speaks of the Removal Act. It talks about each of the tribes, and um, it's a great show. You can go through it quickly. You can go through it maybe a little bit longer, uh, and very importantly, you probably need to come back a day or, or more in order to absorb the content of all, because it's very uh, good. It's not, it's not as large as that at the museum in Washington, D.C., so I find that uh, almost overwhelming, because there's 500 nations. Here we, we're speaking of 39. So I think it's something you can comprehend, which is good. I think it's very good. On the northern part, uh, still in the in the mound, is to be a children's discovery center, which is uh, still being constructed. Uh, in the northern wing, which continues around the entry, there are the amenities of the uh, museum. It has the restaurant, which serves 
a native food, which is uh, really fun. You know, there's a cafe uh, for casual drop-ins. Uh, there's an excellent shop that has uh, enormous amounts of, of Native American art. And when we conceived the project, one of the big proponents, and actually one who initiated the idea for the project, uh, along with a number of other uh, Native people, was a fellow named Kelly Haney. Very important to mention him. He was chief of the Seminoles, and by the time we started the project, he was a state senator and was a head of the Appropriations Committee, which always helps. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And so he, uh, he was very, uh, very instrumental in organizing this. But the North Wing is, has a number of these amenities. It also has the uh, FAM Theater, which is a very state-of-the-art facility for performance. Uh, it has enormous flexibility. You can move the seating back and forth and you can create a multi-purpose room out of it. It's really quite a wonderful facility. On the second floor is the administration. There's also the tribal meeting room, uh, which that's where many of the tribes come together and they have their meetings. And one of the concepts we had from the beginning was that this needs to be distinctly different from the museum in Washington, D.C. Uh, it has the facilities in the basement to be able to house those collections. But uh, the important distinction was that you go to see the artifacts in Washington, D.C. There's no other facility as extensive as, as the facility in Washington. But you go to Oklahoma to see and greet the Native Americans, the indigenous people. So I think that was uh, rewarding to me from the beginning to actually see it in practice. I should say that the original mission was a museum and cultural center. So this is a cultural piece of this museum, which is called the Living Museum. And so I think that's, uh, that's a big thing, getting into the materials and things. In the beginning, uh, we had a, a little discussion uh, about what the color of the building should be. And then Don Fixico saw the conversation. So he reminded us the colors that are really important uh, were red, yellow, blue, and white. White being optimistic. So you'll see a lot of white in the museum, particularly the Hall of the People, the Hall of Reconciliation. The 10 columns are white columns. The building is more or less white. There are metal panels. We used a manufacturer, it was a, I think it was a solar band 60 glazing. It's baked on color. Uh, it had a slight blue tint to it. It was really quite wonderful. And Scott picked the color out of that. And so it worked out pretty well. I recall reading something about my brain's wanting to say some metal that you put on the outside of the building that you chose because it would weather to an earthen color. Yeah, that's a, I'm glad you brought that up. As Scott came up with the idea uh, somewhere in the process after we developed the elevation of the building and stuff that a core 10 steel would be interesting as a sort of a standalone screen uh, along the interface of the promontory walk. It starts at the beginning in the earth and then it goes through, actually it breaks at the, at the where the glass comes down to the hall of the people and then it goes into the inside and then it reestablishes itself on the outside and it goes up a short distance up the mound a bit okay and from the standpoint of the west light it blocks 
It allows for a screening of the West Light at sunset, but more importantly, it is a kind of a transition material between the Earth, the festival circle, and the building. So uh, it doesn't touch the building, it actually sits apart from it, but it uh, forms a, a really quite interesting arc along the face of the, of the building as a screen. Now, many of, of your listeners are familiar with Corten, so it, it, it rusts as rain weather uh, attacks the surface, but it, it has a, an ability to stop so it doesn't deteriorate the steel to a point where it falls apart. Uh, it does bleed a lot, uh, and, uh, but this is situated on ground, so it, it will dissipate into the uh, uh, natural earth. So were there um, any surprises that came up during design or construction that caused you to change your design or, or design or rethink your path? Well, we had thought about this mound. We said, you know, there needs to be something really interesting about this mound that, that has a kind of functional aspect to it. Of course, the issues of global warming and this sort of thing were definitely being talked about in the 90s, but in many cases, they weren't taking it as seriously as we do today. I mean, things are very really different today. You start with that idea. But we thought that uh, we needed to conserve energy by uh, using the mound and its insulation that it offered. And one of the things that we came up with with the mechanical engineers, we had these two very large pipes that extended out. Uh, this is a study that was done very seriously on how to save energy. And these pipes would extend through the mound uh, and then would uh, vent out at some point uh, several hundred feet away. And they were filled with a certain kind of stone, uh, so it retains heat or retains coldness at certain points of the year. Uh, in the winter, then, uh, air would come through those pipes. Uh, if it's cold in the winter time, uh, of course, the mound would be uh, less cold. And uh, at this depth, I mean, this, so there's quite a bit of soil above you and uh, one way or the other. Uh, so by the time it gets to the mechanical systems, uh, it's already been tempered to a point where uh, the systems don't need to generate as much heat or in the centimeters has to do with cooling the same way. So uh, we did a cost-benefit analysis, and of course, uh, at that time, it didn't prove out to be uh, economical. Uh, but today, given uh, energy costs today and the problems with organic fuels and things, uh, it's very possible that this thing could be feasible today. So I, I, I really think that, that that would have been a great gesture towards uh, ecological uh, issues, sustainability, and resilience that we talked about today. Well, maybe on the next 25-year museum you do, you'll be able to do that. Well, we were hoping to retrofit the mound, but I think that'd be too difficult. <laughs> so that can kind of lead to the next question. Looking back on your process, in your solutions, in this journey, what were your big lessons learned or what would you do differently were you to do another one like right off the bat? I, first of all, I don't think I necessarily do anything differently. I think because it took so long, we learned things. So I think this is a message for those who deal with cities and complex projects is 
that research is really critical and you need to really spend a significant amount of your budget and trying to understand how you can innovate and um, interpret your clients' needs. And in this case, the research really bordered on understanding cultural differences and uh, honoring those. And a part of this would be also to uh, really empower the people that you're you're working for representing with the ability to engage you as a, an interpreter of their needs and, and conditions. I can't imagine that you could do a project like this and not leave a little bit of your heart behind. Hmm. What impact did this project, outside of all the technical things of a building, what impact did this project have on on you both as an architect and as a human being. Some of these things that that the Navy people talk about, you really, it takes a while to really understand this, and you don't really understand it until you experience it yourself. I'll tell you a, a short story, which is interesting from my standpoint. When my father passed away, there was a group of photographs that I found. Uh, and there's an eight by 10 photo of a group of Native American chiefs and a very little runny guy, Caucasian guy, and then then a very tall, handsome gent. And of course, I thought maybe the t- tall, handsome gent was my relative. You know, <laughs> It turned out to be uh, the small, runny guy was my relative. And, <laughs> and the, tribal, the tribes were all mentioned. And I didn't know where it was. But I found out later it was in front of the Supreme Court of the United States. This is five years into the project, by the way. And a fellow named Blake Wade, who was uh, at that point was, or a little earlier, had been the uh, head of the Historical Society in Oklahoma City. And at one of these meetings, I put this little photograph down at the bottom of, you know, the walls were all pasted with all types of plans and things and drawings and photographs and things of people. And at the end of it, he said, Bill, I have one question. What's, what's that down there? And I said, well, I'm not really sure, but I, th- I think it's my, my great uncle uh, who lived in Oklahoma uh, during these Oklahoma City, but I don't know much about him. He said, well, let me go look in the, in the archives. So he went and he looked in the archives and he pulled out a bunch of articles. And it so happens that my great uncle represented the same tribes before the Supreme Court of the United States over a land claim by settlers. And uh, he took it through all the courts and ended up the Supreme Court. And they won. (laughs) Wow. And there he is, uh, this little runny guy. And uh, it was fabulous. I mean, I just can't tell you. So in a way, I've come full circle all the way around, not knowing at all when we were first approached by Ron Rosenfeld about the possibility of doing this project. That's that's that whole circular that's a part of your building. And I, I, I call those kinds of things messages from the universe for, for whatever reason, whatever you believe, you were meant to be in a certain place at a certain time. For some reason, you may never know. Um, that's right. But, that's a beautiful story. I love that. And I'm glad your uncle won. Sorry yeah. he was the runty yeah. guy, but I'm glad he won. <laughs> That's all right. You know, he won. But uh, if he lost, it would have been a different story. 
but there was it has all the tribal chiefs' names and everything like that. It's really quite amazing. So, and then here you are, years later, representing the same tribes and trying to honor them yeah. with this building. That's a hundred years later. Yeah, you know, <laughs> hundred years. That's all. Well, at least it didn't take you a hundred years to do the museum. Almost. You know, only twenty five. <laughs> Bill, thank you so so much for joining me to talk about this building today. And to my listeners, there is um, on the landing page will be a number of pictures and a fact sheet on the project and um, a sheet on some different products that were involved in this building. It was so huge. We just couldn't get anywhere near getting into everything today, but you can go see more on the landing page for the podcast. And Bill, thank you again. I hope you keep me in touch and keep me in the loop on what you guys are doing next. Thanks, Therese. Nice talking to you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, rcat has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try rcat and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit rcat.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.